everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says, episode 82. My name is Alice. Thank you so much for downloading this one. In this episode, I get to talk to a poet who I have known through one of his poems for about 10 years and I've sort of been on his trail since then. So Grant Caldwell is uh, currently at the University of Melbourne. But quite a while ago, he wrote a poem called I Am Not the Trick of the Flower, which has been published in a number of different locations um, over the years, a number of different journals and collections. But it was introduced to me through a writing workshop that I did at the ACT Writers' Centre. And from that day forward, I think it was in my top 10 poems of all time. I've only realized recently that it's got this structure that's very much like a pantoum. It kind of has this repetition running through it, but that might have been one of the things that drew me to it. But really, it's the message of the poem that I've found a real touchstone over the years, really. So before I get uh, into the poem itself, I'll tell you a little bit about this chat with Grant. So I made my way over to Melbourne Uni, into the English department there and uh, went to Grant's office and we had a fantastic talk. We talk firstly about the poem, I Am Not the Trick of the Flower, and that leads us into a discussion of uh, Taoism, meditation, sort of the religious framing around the poem. And then we start to talk about its uh, positions as an Australian poem. So why aren't there any Australian reference points in this poem? And that leads Grant to talk about writing from what he describes as the position of the privileged white male. Then there's a point at which I bring in uh, the poet Sid Corman, who I've talked about before on this podcast. And at that moment, Grant gets up and brings over his book, which is called Intention and Unintention, or the Hyperconscious in Contemporary Lyric Impulse. If the title doesn't immediately make sense to you, don't worry. We unpack what it means and it leads us into a really interesting chat about why we feel compelled to write poetry. Um, What are these poems that kind of appear, that insist on being written? What is that impulse? And if you write a poem through that impulse, does it matter if it doesn't get published, hypothetically? Uh, We do talk about a poem of mine that fits into that category. And then towards the end, we circle back to a discussion around haiku in English and the structures there, how it echoes Japanese forms and how it pushes against them. So yeah, we cover a lot of ground in this chat. I really hope you enjoy it. And I want to lead you into it by reading this poem of Grant's, I am not the trick of the flower. I am not the trick of the flower. I am the flower. I no longer care what you think of me. I am effort and idleness. I have earned this claim. I am not the trick of the flower. I eat dirt and sun, drink the rain. I am larger than my circumference. I no longer care what you think of me. I am not what you have captured. I am beyond analysis. I am not the trick of the flower. I am not practicing to be a flower. I am the flower. I no longer care what you think of me. I am the earth and the sun and the rain. I am not the trick. I no longer care what you think. What I thought I would say just to start off with, just to kind of introduce my own relationship to Mm. your work, um, I do tend to shy away from interviewing writers such as yourself who have a long list of publications, a long history of publishing in Australia, I I find it quite intimidating. I never feel like I'm going to be able to get enough of a handle on the work to effectively ask questions. Um, But I've been thinking of contacting you for a long time and just finally got over myself and did it uh, because the poem uh, of yours, I Am Not the Trick of the Flower, I've had on my notice board since at least 2008, maybe nine. Um, I've got it here. You can see all the little holes. <laughs> taking it down and Take put it, it up yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one that I've sent to people. Um, I've, yeah, I've written it on my arm before going <laughs> up for performances. 
uh, yeah, it's just really, really important to me. So, mm. um, yeah, thanks for writing this poem, basically. Uh, That's all I need to say. It, it, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a great, uh, it was a catharsis for me writing it because mm -hmm. um, I really mean it. And it was um, it was a great release mm. to be able to say that in a in a way that was effective, um, and uh, yeah, and I think it's important. I think people people uh, well, I I was you know everyone uh, suffers from being too concerned of how, how they how they are perceived by other people or, or acting for for what they. Un understand or, or or think other people want of them, mm. and, and uh, it's, it's it's inhibiting, and that's um, that's not only um, detrimental to writing; it's detrimental to well, self discovery or whatever you want to say, self mm. uh, enlightenment or um, just being a happy person. Yeah, yeah. Or, or not an unhappy person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not an unhappy person. Mm. Um, I don't remember when I wrote it. Oh, right. I have okay. no, I've no, I'm very bad at, at records. I, my, my notebooks are very messy. Uh, I, I have various notebooks lying around in different places. I don't write dates on them. The only, the only guide would be when it was first published, and I don't even remember that. I could mm. probably find out, but I... I think I was just looking at uh, your publication history and I think it came out in a journal in Japan in 2008. Does that sound right? Or maybe it wasn't in Yeah, Japan. it's possible, but it was probably published in Australia before that. Before that, that yeah. Um, yeah, because I think I did this workshop, like, yeah, around that time. It was published in, in one of my books, of course, in, probably in the early 2000s, as, as I'm recalling. I, can, I could look it up, but... Um, there's a book published in um, 2003. It's either in that, it could even be the one from 96, but I don't think so. I think it was in 2003 book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I, I've just loved having it up on my notice board all these years and kind of noticing how each time I'll, I'll reappraise it I'll feel as if the message rings a little bit truer because right. of course at first I read it and thought oh it must be nice to feel that way yeah <laughs> and then gradually I think in in large part through meditation practice uh, which is another thing I wanted to ask you about um, it's come to feel more true to me yeah 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 is I know you have an interest in Zen is that right or um, I, I've, I've been studying Taoism for a long time, but I'm not a Taoist. I don't, I don't as, as subscribe to any uh, uh, strict or even unstrict mm. philosophical stance. Uh, I'm a magpie, a philosophical magpie, yeah, if you like. Me too. Um, but I, found, I find Taoism the most sensible and... and, um, and um, um, deeply true to the extent that humans can understand what that is um, uh, texts of um, not just Lao Tzu and, and uh, Changzi but um, because they're always written in translation and the translations vary but they're, they're wonderful the only other person who, who I rate really highly is J. Krishnamurti um, right. Now he, I don't know if you're aware of. I have definitely heard the name, but I'm struggling to mm. think. So he, he, uh, he, he, he doesn't, he, he doesn't belong or subscribe to any religious or philosophical position, but his own, the one he worked out himself. But he was discovered by the Theosophists, mm -hmm. and and trained from a very young age to be a, the world teacher by a, um, uh, an organisation they ha developed called the Order of the Star. Right. And the Theosophists believed that they had access to the spirits and they're a bit weird in some ways. Christian Verdi certainly is not. He's very down to earth. 
very clear. And he was found as a nine-year-old. He, he had, a, he was a, in a, he had a, about nine siblings, a very poor family in India. And the Theosophists, they chose him amongst a few, a handful of others from around the world to be the next world leader who they would educate. And <coughs> they asked, they said to the parents, we can we take him away and educate him, feed him, clothe him? You can visit him anytime you like, or he can visit you anytime. And they said, of course, because what, you know, what kind of future did he have with them, basically? Mm -hmm. But they said one condition is, um, can his younger brother go with him? And, and the officer said, yes, of course. The younger brother was actually more, seemed more spiritually aware than Krishnamurti when they were young. But he died when he was 15. And so Krishnamurti at the age of about 30, 35 or something, uh, the aura of the star gathered somewhere in either California or India, three or 4,000 people, and he disbanded. Like he, he, he was there to be kind of acknowledged as the world teacher. He'd finished all his learning over 20 or 25 years and he disbanded the Order of the Star and there was uproar and people collapsed and argued and mm. and shouted. But, um, Sounds like the ultimate Taoist approach though. In a way. Disband your own order. In, exactly. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that he was following any Taoist approach. He, he would have read all of the religious and philosophical tracts and then and his idea of meditation is um, being self-aware, right. being in a state of self-awareness, right. which is what, as I understand it, meditation trains you to be because people are not easily self-aware. They're not easily in the moment. They're not easily mindful. Hmm. And, and meditation trains people to, to be so. Um, and uh, but you know, Krishnamurti doesn't believe you have to sit down and close your eyes or stare at a candle or whatever to do that. Okay. He says meditation is when you're absorbed in where you are. Mm. Mm. I mean, uh, as I see it, I don't think he's saying <clears throat> don't meditate. But he's he's saying you don't have to, and just because you meditate doesn't mean you're self-aware, no, or mindful. Yeah, I, I think that's that's such a great way of putting it because the response that you often get when you out yourself as a meditator is like, oh, I could never do that because I can't stop myself from thinking, mm. and I always want to say, well, that's absolutely not the point. Mm. The point is just to be aware of what you're thinking so yeah. that you have that tiny yeah. bit of space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's fine to think, but be aware that you're thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and so do you have a formal meditation no. practice at all? No, okay. No. Right. Um, I, I, I'm like that, your friend, um, I, I, I've tried meditating. Um, yeah. I get bored. Fair. <laughs> it's <laughs> really boring. <Yeah. laughs> there is no But I but I that. stand and stare at things yeah. for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that I'm doing that. Yeah. Uh, or or I'm not, even better. You know, I'm absorbed in what I'm what I'm what I'm observe, observing. Mm. Um, and and I'm not always conscious of not being mindful, but I can become aware of it mm. um, and and change that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, Just but, but I'm not a perfect human being. I have a temper, and I, uh, you know, I get all the usual human frailties, mm -hmm. faults. Yeah, and so do many or all the best meditation teachers have that and are aware of that and admit to that and yes. just are able to see it. Yes, if I had a teacher who, who didn't admit to that then yeah. I, I would, they wouldn't be a teacher. Yeah, then you know to leave the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm wondering, I'm looking at this poem, one of the things that, that strikes me about this poem 
in um, what I know of your other work is that it is very it doesn't have any direct um, pointers to a country or um, a culture I suppose uh, although it definitely hints very strongly at like the Zen tradition um, how important is it to you to have like a particularly Australian reference in your work is that <laughs> something that you consciously do short answer no no um, it's interesting I um, it's a really good question I um, the older I get the, m the more I start to understand what I've been doing mm. I don't work f I work the other way I, I, I do the I, I do the writing and then later on I might understand why I did it or what it even means sometimes mm -hmm. and even then that can change um, and I've recently realized that um, being a privileged white male I don't have a polemical a strong polemical position except as a kind of lefty you know human, human, human humanitarian sort of and um, and I, and, I, and I do write those kind of poems, which where I'm where I'm angry or annoyed, and that that comes into the work. But I certainly don't. Any Australianness is accidental. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's not there. Yeah. Um, um, and that poem, I mean, I think I, I could, you know. Uh, as as you as this discussion so far indicated, you know, I'm 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 influenced by my reading of Taoist texts and and Krishnamurti and um, but also other poets and yeah. and writers and and because um, I I think poetry when it affects me, as not much does, mm. and writing and and fiction mainly. There's uh, there's learning from that, and I think it's about self awareness and self understanding, mm. very much, and all of those things, um, and that may be what a lot of the poetry is s circling around or trying to put into a shape. Mm -hmm trying to put into language so that I can understand what it is I'm understanding. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I yeah. mean, it's that I think that's that's the impulse, yeah. isn't it? I mean, the reason I mentioned the, the, the privileged white thing is I'm, I'm aware that a lot of a lot of poets um, um, like more recent Migrant poets have a polemical position of being minorities or exper having experienced minority, uh, and indigenous poets and writers similarly. And it's not surprising that their work is has a polemical underpinning, and I'm not being critical of that, but. Um, I it may be why I, I'm more self self absorbed. Either that or I'm a narcissist. <laughs> but do you sort of mean that in the position of writing from as you said, privileged white male status, you don't have to push against anything? Well, it's it's really what what I'm compelled to do. Because mm -hmm. I don't think about what I what I should or shouldn't write. I, I don't, I don't, I write from, from impulse. Mm -hmm. I don't write from a position, mm -hmm. uh, unless it's an unconscious position. Right. And my, but my unconscious can also be polemical. I mean, there can be things in it, you know, if I'm, that I'm angry about in the world. So then there can be a polemical basis for what's c going on. But a lot of the time I'm trying to understand myself and 
and and as I see it, if the wor- if if the world population understood itself better, the world would be a much less unhappy place. Uh, it's a kind of idealistic thing, but I, I, that's where I see edu- true education as being essential for that. And I'm not suggesting that being educated makes you a better person because education can be, you can self-educate. You can be educated by by nature. You can be educated by staring at a tree. Uh, you educa- get educated by le- living mm. and learning from that living. But, so I mean education in its broadest sense. Right. Um, this is going to seem like a random tangent, but I'm wondering if you're at all familiar with the work of Sid Corman, an American poet who lived no. in Japan. I, I ask because I feel as if there's a resonance in what you're saying between the writing from impulse and um, versus writing from a, a, a position. And maybe maybe that's like a very uh, silly distinction to draw. There's obviously like a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Um, that's uh, oh, published recently. Oh. That's. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about this too. Oh, you know about it. Yeah, I only just recently. Yeah, I do right. want to know about this as so well. That's the that was my my doctoral thesis. Right. The critical part of it. Um, so what we're looking at here, just for the benefit of listeners, is uh, intention and unintention, or the hyperconscious in contemporary lyric impulse. I'm I'm going to need you to start with the title. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, <laughs> very briefly it's, uh, it's it's kind of what I was just talking about in that right. um, I see lyric has been driven it's, 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 as, I, as I understand it lyrical poetry is personal poetry basically okay that's how I, that's how I interpret it um, or, or define it mm. and um, and and the, the most effective lyric poetry comes from a compulsion to express or understand a deeply troubling personal experience or state. Mm. But where, the question is, what drives that state? What drives that question? What drives that impulse? That was the thing I was most interested in because of you know what right. what made what makes me write about a certain thing and other people not write about that thing. Right. So intention and unintention. Mm. So I see the unin the the unintention is is the is the impulse is the com- compulsion. Mm. The intention is the intention to write poetry at some stage. Yeah. To arm yourself for the for this expression this form of expression this form of writing mm. uh, this form of, uh, of artistic um, output or framing mm. which involves reading of other poetry um, seeing the world in language um, um, developing language by osmosis or by direct learning mm. And then also the editing process as well would be yes. Well, that that's that's another that's a good point because I talk in there about the, the stages of, and other people have written about these things. I think Keats or someone I, I mentioned that, that those that process in in the in the in the, th- in, the doc, in the thesis. Um, so there are two or three stages to the process. There's the impulse and the draft mm. the first uh, sketching and then there's the as you say the um, ob- objective reordering and editing and breaking down and I think that's that's an intentional application mm. but the but the, the most interesting and important part of the process to me is the is the impulse the first 
the first draft, the first, the reason that you write something. I mean, of course, not everything you write in that first draft develops into a into a into a satisfying uh, work, mm. but some of it does. And I guess it is sort of fascinating when you think about it at that sort of at a remove why a human would feel compelled to write yeah. about yeah. some feeling, some troubling thing or, yeah. or an ecstatic yeah. experience as well. Yeah. It is quite strange. Like, well it is yeah. and, 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 and my, and my, my um, interest was piqued over years of knowing other poets, not just myself. And there were two cases in particular, which I go into in detail in that in the thesis, mm. of two particular poems by two Melbourne poets oh. who I know quite well. They're friends. Um, and Ian McBride and Myron Lysenko. Oh, I know Ian a little bit. Well, uh, Ian wrote a poem called Last Fathom about the, the frogmen that were left behind by the submarine off the, off in the Pacific 20 years ago or so. Um, they were, the, the submarine closed the hatch and dove and, and, and went away and leaving the two frogmen unintentionally mm. and only realised some minutes later, some time later that they had left the two frogmen behind. They went back to find them, they never found them. So Ian wrote the poem from the two frogmen point of view and their slow demise over a time time lapse. And I said to him, and, and Ian's history, Ian was orphaned when he was young with his, I think his young brother. And he has, um, he's written a lot about his father, how his fa he blames his father for leaving and, and his mother couldn't pick the two boys and they had to go to an orphanage and Ian is driven I don't, I'm sure he doesn't mind me saying so um, by this childhood experience I said to him one day I said oh, uh, something like of course you know is, are you are you um, I can't remember how I put the question, but I, I, vir I virtually asked asked him or, or said, made a statement around the fact that, that this poem was very autobiographical. And he said, what do you mean? Oh, wow, he didn't see... He didn't see the connection. I said, you know what the poem's about? And I said, he said, it's about two guys getting left behind. I said, yeah, but in one word. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's about abandonment. And he went white. <laughs> He suddenly realised what it was about. You see what I mean? Mm. Now, why did he? Why is he the only poet or writer in Australia who wrote about that? As others may have written about it, but didn't complete it and, and didn't come, you know, to fruition. And it's a it's a really good poem mm. because he's because of his unconscious. You see, Myron, the, the story with Myron and his brother. I won't go into, but since in the thesis is equally um, revealing. Mm. But neither poet had that. No, I had. The, I got the same reaction from Myron when yeah. I talked to him about a particular poem, which I had a, a, some personal experience of this event and of uh, of, of with him. I, I, I'm, Myron's a closer friend of mine than Ian. I don't mean. It's just I've had longer experience and closer experience with, with Myron as a friend over right. many years. Yeah, it, it's helping me to understand this discussion why certain of my poems, even though they will never be published, they've been rejected like upwards of 20 times, mm. I just can't let go mm. because there's this impulse. Yeah. I had this experience riding my bike. Uh, I used to work at La Trobe and I used to ride my bike to La Trobe and there was a man walking near the bike path wearing a bathrobe and smoking a cigarette um, just early in the morning and there was just something about him 
Mm. I immediately got to work and wrote a draft of a poem mm. which has literally been rejected like 25 yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not working, but no. I'm not going to give up on no. it. Like, I love no, it. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. And it's, yeah. whether it gets published or not is irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. It's what you get from the poem, what mm. you get about understanding yeah. not just yourself but the world around you, which mm. is yourself. Well, he was very, he was very Jesus-like. So there was, that, <laughs> there was that part of it. And I don't have any uh, Christian background at all, so there's no link there. But he just seemed So like when you say he was Jesus-like, is that something you thought at the time? Yeah, yeah, I thought... Um, but why, if you have no religious background, why did you think that? I think because he had kind of longish hair and it was like yeah, beautiful but, golden but light. If you've had no religious background, when did you last lay eyes on an image of Jesus? No, sure, no, absolutely, I do have like... The religious background of anyone who, you know, lives in yeah, the normal one. The normal where one. Where you yeah. rejected it at the age in your teenage years. Oh well it never came into my oh. life to be rejected, but yes, I mean it you was had, there. They tried. Someone might have tried at <laughs> some point. Yeah, they yeah. always try. But yeah, no, I had those references, I guess. Yeah. Uh, um It's possibly not the best example, but it's just a poem. No, I, I think it's a gr- I think it's a great example. Uh, I, I can see the poem. It's, uh, I think it's a fantastic... Do you know why he was standing there in his bathrobe? Well, that was the other thing. He was so far away from any house, and he was wearing a bathrobe, so he seemed sort of lost. Did he have slippers on, or do you remember? I can't remember if he was wearing shoes or not, but he definitely What colour was the robe? I think it was pink. <laughs> I want to say it was pink. Mm. But, yeah, it just seemed as if He's he had appeared a from there, from nowhere, in that spot. And, and the bike path was where? Was it the Mary Creek bike path? Uh, Darabin Creek, just near Northland Shopping yeah. Centre. Okay. So those those paths, they they some of them are actually closer to houses than it appears. You know, the houses are actually mm. quite close, but the topography hides that, doesn't it? Oh, so, for sure. So like it's he possible he his his family doesn't like him smoking. Very possible. And he, you know, but that's a rational explanation. That yeah. that doesn't that almost destroys the the, the mystery and the, the, the mystic yeah. element of why why it struck you as as uh, as um, why it struck you as something you needed to write down, mm-hmm. not just because it's unusual. I mean, yeah. if you write it as a haiku, it it doesn't work because it's too unusual, in a mm. way. Yeah, it, you need more room. You need to to expand on it a little bit yeah and and maybe if you can understand why you needed i mean it seems to me you you wanted to write it down because it's a really unusual event but there may be some reason you know i'm psychoanalyzing you now maybe some some deeper reason why it resonated with you Mm. and you've and it stayed with you because i think memory we remember the things that affected us most deeply. I know that sounds a really obvious statement, but it's true. And the, I think the reason we remember them is that, that word, remember, because we continue to remember. We re-remember mm. uh, through, through, through time, and we change those memories, consciously yeah. or unconsciously, um, to, to make ourselves look better to ourselves yeah. uh, or to... Um, make the experience more um, interesting or more close to what its effect is on our life, things like that. And then there's our perception at the time, which is also clouded um, and not perfect, depending on our emotions at the time and our psychological state. So... Mm. But I think I think things that happen that are interesting are not necessarily the best. You know, they're not necessarily the material of poetry. No. I'm not saying this one isn't. No, but it is. It is tough because there's a lot of framing and setup mm. that you need to give the reader. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that they understand why it, why this matters. And yeah. 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 I'm starting to see why this poem's not worked. <laughs> mm. This mm. is very useful. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask, you mentioned haiku in there. I wanted to ask you about haiku in English as well. Um, I, uh, I have that Stephen Fry book, uh, The Odorless Travelled, that I look at a lot as kind mm. of my, my main... I haven't read it. Oh, look, 
I'm sure you would know every single thing that's in there, but one of the things that he says is that uh, it kind of makes that argument against haiku in English, in that, hmm. you know, you... Yeah. Because in Japanese there's kind of all these, these things you can do with the with the language mm. that are just harder yeah. to achieve yeah. in English. Yeah. Um, it's weird though, isn't it? It's probably the most written form of poetry in the world now. Completely. Mm. And, and you so start how, in primary how, school. How does he... Yeah, I mean, this. Um, I, I'm, I'm writing an article at the moment about non-Japanese haiku, okay. and I'm talking about the very, the very thing. You know, Basho. Um, you know the origin of haiku. Ba- Basho, Basho took the beginning. Ba- haiku was originally hoku, which was the opening verse of a of a, a renga, which was a, a group poem, mm-hmm. and it needed to be started by somebody with a three line, usually a three line, and traditionally seventeen ona on ona, which is a Japanese sound unit, not syllables, very different to syllables, um, and that poem needed to establish place and time right okay. which is where the kigo comes into it kigo meaning the seasonal and cultural reference yep um, so basho started to use that opening poem which hoku means means opening verse uh, there's a lot of stuff i'm going to say now which might be inaccurate <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it's, it's, it's generally true what okay. I'm saying. I'm not. I'm not a. I don't speak Japanese. Okay, uh, but I've read a lot about these terms, and, and he, in, in, in he took that that opening verse and established it as a poem on its own. Right. Okay, keeping the same rules yeah, of the. But he didn't group. name it haiku. That was by a, another poet, Shiki, in the, in the, I think, the 19th century, l- a couple of hundred years later, or 150 years later. Um, and his idea was that haiku, or poetry in general, needed to be written along two axes. It had to be written with the acknowledgement and knowledge of what had gone before, the history of the poetry or the poem but it equally had to be written on a horizontal axis. So perpendicular is looking back into the history and knowledge of the, of the form. The horizontal is the now, mm. it is to bring it into the contemporary and, and, and the new. So t- to my mind, part of that horizontal axis is the writing of haiku by all nationalities in the world. This is the new. Now the argument could be, well, how can they possibly equate with the the the, the, the underlying kigo of Japanese culture, which is ingrained in in in, in haiku, in mm. Japanese haiku. Mm. And my argument is that many contemporary Japanese haiku writers don't adhere to all of that. Kigo reference. They are very modern, some of them, mm. and most of them write in free ver- free haiku. They don't adhere to any of the strict rules. Really? But that's not just yeah. That's not to say they don't also acknowledge or have knowledge of the history, the the perpendicular axis. Um, where the argument does have some strength is that the haiku writers, the non-Japanese haiku writers, don't have an established symbolic um, lexicon on which to draw. Yeah, they can't just say cricket and equals summer. Yeah, or moon equals this. But to my mind, as you might guess, I, I have a problem with that kind of strict symbolic reference it makes it too dogmatic but well, it's also very like monocultural yeah 
Um, well, yeah, and yes, but but it's also it it rigidifies the magic. And when I read Japanese haiku, um, I'm not always aware of what what the cultural and, and seasonal references are meaning, but it mm. but it still knocks my socks off. Why is that? Because there's a there's a there's a universal language in poetry, irrespective of these kind of lexiconical um, rules or scenario things. Mm. So, so you know, there's people in Australia talking about that we should establish a lexicon. You know, of, of and I'm, I'm very opposed to that. I, I don't want to formalise and 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 uh, you know and lay down rules. I hate rules. Mm. I, you know, I say to the first year students, the 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 uh, the first rule in art is no rules. The second rule is always maintain the right to contradict yourself. Yeah. So you know, you're free to do what you like, as long as it works. Mm. And who's to judge if it works? Posterity, perhaps. If nobody, if nobody gets your dressing gown, man <laughs> poem now, posterity may. When they come from my drawers, That's as you right, come and look through my drawers. Look at this. this look is, at this poem. It's this a is, masterpiece. This is foretelling the future of history of man of humankind. Completely. Um, I've kept you for a while now, but I wanted to ask you a final question, which is um, you mentioned at the start that not much that you read really moves you. <laughs> and I'm wondering what have you read recently that, that has moved you that's sort of resonating with you right now? Uh, I'm, I'm more interested in reading novels. This is a terrible thing to say. Um, but I'm not just a poet. I write. I write. I write yeah. novels. I, I haven't. I've, I've published more poetry than than novels or fiction. But I'm. I'm um, I don't know why it is. I mean, the the, the 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 small magazine unusual work really excites me. Yeah, I, I read love, your review of it. I yeah. love the work in there. Most you know, most of it is is fresh and it's yeah. real and it's it's not constrained. It's not stodgy. Most of the poetry published in uh, in Australian and and American and English journals that I read, it's so formulaic. It's so predictable. It's it's just like the same thing being written by the just the name of the poet is different, and it's and it's dense and stodgy, and it's afraid to say anything because that doesn't have any ideas in it. Any original ideas? You know, you could say, well, there is no, there are no original ideas, but I don't know that's true. There may be original ways of looking at things, because every every instance, like every person, is different. Mm. I suppose that comes back to what you were saying at the start about your own work and the the personal, the lyric yeah. focus there. Yeah. Um, but that, but but what I should say is, you know, I write three different kinds of poetry. I write, um, and, and over the last 20 years I've been writing more abstract um, kind of uh, uh, non-linear poetry, mm. but I also write, I, I used to write um, more anecdotal linear narrative poems uh, that were often funny or meant to be. Um, and I don't write that so much, but just recently I wrote, I wrote a couple of what you might call performance poems, mm. which uh, Unusual Work's going to publish in the next issue, um, which were great because they came naturally, they came out of nowhere and, and they're a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and there's substance to them, they're not just light laugh, laugh, laugh along things, but um, or one is about the rain, which is, um, was, was a joy to write and as rain is, <coughs> unless you're out in it with mm. no cover, mm. um, which I wasn't. And, um, and, then, and, then, and then there's haiku, which is, 
I would have once said it, it's it's an objective snapshot of an 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 event or activity that you an observation. But I recently read somewhere that Basho said, and I you know I, I bow to him. So yes. I, I listen to him. As He's what? smart. <laughs> he knows. You know, it, 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 he said. The haiku is neither objective nor subjective. And the person he was talking to said, you mean it's more one or the other? And Basho said, no. <laughs> Something like right. that. I was just looking for it again, because uh, yeah, right. I want to think about that. Yeah. And I think I know what he means. I, I'm, I'm, this is my own just uh, interpretation of it. I think what he means is even if, even if, if you say something is objective, there's still an element of subjectivity in that objectivity. You're still, you're still aware of being objective. And and the best haiku come when you're neither. You're not there. You're yeah. you're, you're not. Yourself is not in existence. Mm. You are absorbed in the thing. He said, to understand the pine, you must become the pine. And, and that says it all to me. You, you know, you, there's a. Robert Hass collected some sayings by um, Basho called something about uh, under, uh, becoming the pine or something like okay. that. There's a whole list of, of Basho's sayings. I'll that objective, subjective one is not in, in that list. Mm. I, I came across it looking up Jane Hirschfield, who ju was just read some poems here last week. We held an event for her, and she's, she's very into all that stuff too. And... Uh, was in an interview or, or one of uh, on the web, uh, and I came across it. And I want to find. I was trying to find it again. I want to print it out because I find it fascinating. But I think that's what he what 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 that means. Yeah, yeah. Back to this. So that's very different to to this kind of lyric thing. You know, it's based on seeing on actual events, mm. and you know, as you know in haiku, there's no imagery and there's no, you know, it's about actual. Thing as well as and Sunro, you know, in the, um, I, you know, your your dressing gown man. I I I, I, I live in in Parkville and I, and I'm on the first floor and I, we're very lucky. It's it's a very old apartment block, but the front windows look onto the street, which is kind of a broad boulevard almost, and there's a lot of traffic. I get a lot of things walking backwards yeah. and forwards. Or so I'm good. always looking out that window at things. Yeah. And one day I saw a man walking up the footpath on the other side of the street, followed by a plastic bag. And that really happened. Just in the breeze? Yeah. But I don't mention the breeze. Yeah. It's a bit in the haiku. That it, I can't remember the exact haiku, but it's, you know, the man. I was thinking of changing it actually the other day, but... Um, Followed by a plastic bag, and then and after I published it, and, and Claire Gaskin referred to it in in um, when she launched um, the the new and um, new and selected book of poems. Um, she referred to it, and in her referencing it made me think about it again. And I started to see there are some kind of uh, broader implications to that poem. Mm with humankind being followed by a plastic bag. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's very current at the moment, you know, with Coles and Woolworths and these people, places quite rightly banning them. Mm. And uh, Lauren Williams wrote a fantastic rap poem. You know, it's, it's you could call it a WRAP poem um, <laughs> about plastic bags. Mm. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a performance piece. It's very, very funny. Um, yeah. No, that was like 20 years ago that she wrote that, I think. Right. Sorry, Lauren, if that was inaccurate. <laughs> no worries. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to mention that I didn't bring no, to? No, you actually can tell I could talk forever, but I, I, have to, I have to get back to work if, no if, if you think that's enough. That's beautiful. Thank you. Okay. I feel like I need to at least go home and look at that bathrobe poem again. <laughs> yes, you I'm do. I'm going to just call it Dressing Gown Man now. Um, <laughs> is it, I think it's a better title. Is that LCD sound system lyrics up there? Yeah. I keep looking up. How yes. come, why, why LCD sound system? I, um, 
I've been watching the new art form of TV series, which I think has become a high art form. TV's getting good. <laughs> and I've been catching up on um, um, on uh, House of Cards. Oh, yes. See, I gave up on House of Cards. Did you? Which season? Which people just kept killing each other. I didn't like it. It's more than more to it. Yeah, than that. no. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was either that or The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. You know how when they end an episode, they they play some different music. Yeah. It might have been Handmaid's Tale. I think it's Handmaid's Tale where they often put in some music like it's a contemporary song. Yeah. From from nowhere, but it's kind of kind of apt. Yeah. It might have been that, but I heard that. Mm. Movement of the LCD sound I system. I heard that. You know this song. I, I might know it, but I don't recognise it from fantastic. the fantastic. Look, I've looked at their other lyrics and their other songs. I don't think they're as good. But this one's... This, I don't know what tapping means. It must be a contemporary term. Where I'm tapped, you're pillaging and I'm tapped. Maybe tapped out, like I'm exhausted. Yep. In any case, cool. it, it really... You know, I heard it. I listened to it. I thought, wow, that's, that sounds really great. That sounds like a performance poem, you know, and it is. And... So oh, I looked yeah. it up on the web and I t printed it out. And I looked up their other stuff, which, as I say, didn't, didn't get grab me grab as much. much. Well, now I've got my outro music. Yeah. Another music.